Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. in the first seven verses where he says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God, amen, and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Father, You're such a good, great God. And we thank You for the opportunity to come just to sing Your praises and to lift You up. I pray that You would now take our focus and just put it squarely where it should be this morning. And that's on You, the supreme object of our admiration. Lord, I pray that You be with this offering. Lord, that we would be cheerful, generous givers as you are a cheerful, generous giver to us. May we glorify and continue our worship in our giving. We thank you again for that opportunity. We come before you this morning to declare your worth. Not that we make you worthy, but that you are worthy. Our hearts are to be united this morning with one declaration. That you are Lord, the creator, the giver of all life. And all that we have is a gracious gift from you. We also understand that we do not deserve one iota of goodness and compassion from you in our natural state, yet you have granted us endless mercy and love. And humbly we offer our gratitude and request that you continue to bless us. Jesus, you are the Savior of the world. In love, humility, and obedience, you have redeemed people of every nation, tribe, and language. You are the one worthy to be declared righteous and you have mercifully taken upon yourself our sin and graciously given us your righteousness. There is nothing that we could ever do to repay you for that kindness. As our advocate, please plead our case before the Father this morning. Bring our prayer requests for wisdom and understanding, for power to fight sin and a desire to worship to the throne of our mighty God. Holy Spirit, you have opened our hearts to the reality of our condition and our need of a Savior. You have enlivened our hearts to the Word of God and taken residence in our lives. Continue the work of empowerment, convicting, and encouragement in those lives. Thank you for being our helper, our counselor, and comforter. And together we lift up our hearts and voices in worship and praise. Prepare us for the Word of God. Rebuke, challenge, convict, and encourage us to live lives that reflect your glory as lights to a darkened world. We join together to pray this in the name of Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen. Take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 1 as we continue. Title, this message is The Trial of Contentment. Have you ever struggled with the trial of contentment? 
I believe that you have, whether you may have noticed it or acknowledged it or not, many of us suffer through the trial of contentment. We're in James chapter 1, 9 through 11. We've been studying so far in this chapter, we saw that we had a need to understand that God is a good, wise, providential king. For most people, they struggle with just that phrase right there. But that's what we find here in James, is that we need to understand that God is a good, wise, providential king who loves his children and desires for them to grow spiritually strong, ready to face and endure all adversary with joy. And that's what we've learned so far here when he says, take joy or count it joy, my brothers, in the midst of different sufferings. To do so, we need to, do, we need to pray with confidence for wisdom in order for you and I to understand and accept God's perfect plan for our lives and for His glory. And I find for many of us, we struggle with understanding and accepting God's plan for our life when it comes to trials and sufferings. Do we not? We struggle with it. It's just something that's innate within us. We discovered last week that surviving the different types of suffering is going to require a bold faith, a whole heart that's devoted to God, and a sincerity of mind as we come before Him and ask for that wisdom. Today, as we continue in James chapter 1, 9-11, through 11, now He's going to write about joy in the midst of suffering that comes through wisdom that eventually that will lead to the contentment that you and I need. So with that, let's read that James 1, 9 through 11. In there, James write, writes, Let the lowly brother boast in his exultation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers falls, and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Father, we do ask for wisdom this morning. Father, as we open up your word, please first send your Holy Spirit to illuminate the word. May it be a light unto our path and a light unto our feet. Father, open up the words that we may understand what you have and, and understand the deep things of you. And we thank you, Lord, that your spirit is there. Now grant us wisdom to understand it, to comprehend it, and then to put it into practice, into faith. Father, there's some here that may need to be to repent and confess of some attitudes that are preventing them from finding contentment with joy in the midst of suffering. Others, we may just need encouragement. And others, we just mean to understand what it is that you're doing in your lives. But I pray that you would just do the work that you've ordained for us this morning. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. First, I want to give you the setting because you, you really need to understand, many times we start reading the Bible and we say, what in the world does this have to do with you and I? Where, where, do, where do we stand? And we have to remember that can be difficult many times because we're standing 2,000 years after what is written. So we must understand, remember who James is. He's the half-brother of Jesus. He's one who did not accept Jesus before, the, before uh, Christ's death and resurrection. But afterwards, as John likes to say, the wind blew, the Holy Spirit came to his heart, made him alive, and he accepted the ministry and the work and the man of Christ. 
And now what we find ourselves, he is now the leader of the church of Jerusalem. And the setting is very simple. Because as you may recall from our introduction to this series, he's writing to those Christian Jews who were displaced and dispersed by persecution. After the church of Jerusalem, you might remember an act started to grow, and there were seven deacons that were brought. There was a persecution of Stephen. And after that, it says that they were scattered it out as the persecution in Jerusalem became very intense. These Christian Jews had left everything they knew and loved when they fled for their lives because of their love and devotion to Jesus. Let me ask you, have you ever fled and left everything you loved because of your love and devotion for Christ? Has it ever caused you to make the tough, hard decisions? Many times we don't feel that it should, but a whole devotion to God is going to cost. And for these people, the cost was very, very hard and very, very high. They accepted Jesus as the Messiah and Savior, and that acceptance cost them their family, their possessions, their social standings, and even their homes. Now scattered among the nations, they were separated from what they knew and understood. And they're trying to pick up the pieces of their lives as they face new threats from those that were anti-Semitic, from their countries that they were living in, and even anti-Christian. Many who had many possessions were left with nothing and were facing economic, economic hardships such as poverty, hunger, and lack of work. They were facing social stigma as they lost the close-knit community of family and friends and heritage. John MacArthur writes of this passage, says that the Jews were victims of persecution, dispossession, deprivation, racism, and bigotry. And that's the setting of James. That's who Paul is saying, take joy, my brothers, when you face sufferings and trials of many kinds. Among all these trials, James is telling them, be content. That's a difficult, difficult message. But James' heart is for these people that he once pastored. Maybe many that he led to Christ and disciplined, disciplined himself. But now scattered as just rootless all over across the Roman Empire. James writes in this passage as he continues, to speak now of those who were both lowly and those who were high. Those who were in poverty and those who enrich. And that leads us to the commandment. James writes in this passage, as we see in the verse 9, that the lowly brother, the one who's poor, the one who's struggling with his finances, the one who's not finding opportunities and enterprise, he says, you're to boast in your exaltation, which seems odd. For the one who's poor is not exalted. In that society, the poor is, is depressed. It's the poor that seems to be getting the, the brunt of all things. But yet he says, boast in your exaltation. But then he goes on to the rich to boast in their humiliation, which again seems like an odd statement to make. For the rich would not be the one who would be humiliated. You seem they, they would seem to be the ones who were high and rich and mighty and had all the power. But what he's saying here is there's something different for them to go. In other words, contentment is not going to be found 
in want or in that which he had much. Again, James seems to echo his half-brother and Lord, who said in Matthew 23.12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James MacArthur writing on this says, trials make all believers equally dependent on God and bring them to the same level with one another by keeping them from becoming preoccupied worthy things. For that's something that we have to understand. Whether you are in want or if you have all that you need, either side of that spectrum, both are going to struggle with preoccupation of earthly things, do they not? The one who is in want is always desirous of more, right? Of survival. But does the rich, let me ask you, for what those of you, I, I don't think we have a lot of rich people here, but was there some of us that may be more comfortable than others? But maybe we even know some uh, people who, who do well or we read about them. But do the rich, do, are they ever preoccupied with earthly things? Or since they have it all, or are they fine? Yeah, they're never. A rich man is rarely content. He always wants what? Just a little bit more. And so what we're seeing here is James is really saying, either, either in poverty or rich, you're preoccupied worthy things. The ESV study Bible writes concerning this passage that the lowly brother is going to be vindicated or exalted by God when he puts his mind on God. In contrast, he exhorts the rich to boast in their humiliation. And he does it in two ways. By realizing once, or first, that their wealth is temporary. Hence we see that it's like the grass. It fades away. And that it brings no advantage before God. And let me tell you, you will not be able to stand before God and say, I've done all that I need to do. I remember I told you the story on Easter, I think it was. Michael Bloomberg, he's the uh, ex-mayor, former mayor of New York. And he believes, because of all of his money and all of his good works, that when he gets to heaven, he will not have to be interviewed at all. He says in a quote by the New York Times that he will be able to go straight through the line and go right to his little mansion because he's done enough to be right before God. And either way, he says it's temporary and there's no advantage to it, but also to identify with the poor. You see, here's what James is trying to get to. And in this case, you may have the rich and you have the poor among you. The church, though, is to be counter-cultural community, which reverses the values of the world. You see, as you and I move outside these walls, we find ourselves in that rat race, do we not? Always trying to get more, always trying to survive, always trying to get a little bit more of the pie. And, and you know, there's all these political and social and economic games that are always going on, and you always have some one side trying to tell you, you deserve more, you need more, or, or even on the other side, you need to give more, you, we need, to, you need to distribute more among others. But when it comes to it, this church, when it comes to the Christian community, when it comes to our Christian identity, we cannot be identified with what the world thinks is important. In other words, and given this context, John or James seems to be saying that the challenges of poverty and wealth is one of the trials of the Christian life. Have you ever thought of that? You say, yeah, poverty, I understand. Poverty is suffering. That's a trial. 
Surviving from one day or one week to the next is a trial. And many of us have been there, have we not? Where it's paycheck to paycheck. And just sometimes we're asking, hey, can I get my check a day early? I remember working back in a company years and years ago. And I knew the payroll person. And there was times I had to go to her and say, I know tomorrow's payday, but can I get my check today? And you think, oh, I just need to do that once. So after a while, then it's next month, two months go down. You think you have everything, and all of a sudden, you're just living it. And let me tell you, that is a difficult way to live. And some of you may be living that life today so you understand the difficulties and the trials and the sufferings. But do the rich suffer? No. They got everything they need. Everything's taken care of for them. But I have to tell you that the rich suffer just as you and I do. One might ask, I understand how the poor suffer, but how does the rich? Well, simply put is that the rich suffer from many of the same trials as the poor. Money is no answer to all things. They suffer from marriage woes just as much as you do or maybe more. They suffer from family and health problems. They too have rebellious children and broken relationships and broken dreams. Many times it's just more magnified than what you and I have. They're not immune to drug addiction and other dependencies. And in many cases, they're more prone to suffering than you and I have. They just do a better job of masking it. You see, money doesn't truly satisfy or answer all of our problems. It can deaden the pain, yes. It can medicate the hurt, yes. Or it can delay the consequences many times. However, having money does not absolve you from suffering and trials in life. It cannot make peace or give lasting contentment. But yet, is that not what we think? If I just had a little more. If I just had a little more. And we find ourselves preoccupied with the trial of wanting more. However, poor Christians and wealthy Christians can both rejoice that God is no respecter of persons. You see, when God looks at you, He does not look at you as a poor Christian or a rich Christian or a comfortable Christian. Let's put that one in there. Because what one person thinks is poor and what one person thinks is rich can be debated and argued. But what we can rejoice is He is no respecter of persons. And that they both have the privilege of being identified with Christ. You see, as we go to Romans 8, 16, where it talks about our identity is not found in how much money we have, or how much money we make, or how much we've invested, or what we have gained in this world, but it's found in Christ. Look at that verse. It says, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are what? Say that with me. That we are children of God. Amen? And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. This has been our Sunday school verse this week. For I consider that the sufferings of this time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And although having nothing in this world, the poor believer can rejoice in his high spiritual standing before God, grace and the hope that brings. That's where he says, let the poor or the lowly person rejoice in his exaltation. 
He rejoices not in what he does not have or what he desires. He exalts in the fact that he is a child of God. And his exaltation comes not of what he's done or what he's earned, but in what Christ has done for him. That's the exaltation of the poor. In 1 Peter 1.4, the Bible tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You see, you may be struggling from paycheck to paycheck today. You may be just one of those ones that's surviving. You may be relying on the goodness of others at this moment. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, He has something wonderful waiting for you, and it's being there for you. And that's what you and I need to be preoccupied with, not this temporary situation on earth. Doug Moo, a pastor, writes that they are commanded to look toward their spiritual identity as the measure of their ultimate significance. And you could see those many, many rich Jews at that time who lost it all, and as they come back, and now they're trying to make their way back, they're saying, look at what I lost back in Jerusalem. And there are many times, many people who say, look what I lost when I became a Christian. Look what I'm struggling with. The Bible tells us not to find our identity in those things. You could see the trials and the sufferings they might have faced during those difficult times. And you too may be facing that in the, in the different trials and suffering that you have. Look what I've lost. The Bible says is not to be preoccupied, but count in the things that Christ has given you. Now James writes a little bit more in verses 10 and 11, to those that are rich or desire to be rich, for many believe that a little bit more is the answer to everything. And so he says to the poor, to the lowly, do not be preoccupied with those things. Be exalted in your identity in Christ. For the rich also put yourself in your humiliation, not in what you have on this earth, but the fact of what Christ has done for you. But let's continue. If you have your Bibles, James 1. He continues in the second part of verse 10. He says, Because like a flower of the grass, he, the rich, will pass away. He cannot take anything with him. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. So we're not to trust in our money. We're not to trust in our riches or our producing power or our earning value and our investments. For those things will, like the grass, be withered away. I've said this before. Many of us have been to funerals. Many of us have followed along a hearse. But how many times have you ever seen a hearse with a U-Haul attached with the guy bringing everything he owns or bringing all of his investments and throwing them in him so he can have them? What a waste. We see that folly of that when you see the Egyptian pharaohs now who, who would put in all their treasures and all, their, all the things that they held valuable. They would bury it with them, including many times their servants and their spouses buried alive. Why? So they could have them for the afterlife. 
but only now to find the self that the archaeologists and treasure hunters are finding themselves raping those pyramids of all those things and taking them and using them as just display. What a folly. No hope in eternity in those things. Scripture has many warnings against desiring more money and the attitude that money solves all problems. And this is where I'm going to focus. Because to be honest, uh, we are not a church with, with a lot of wealthy people. Probably where most of us struggle is probably in just wanting a little bit more. Just, and even those that are wealthy always want more. It's just the way it is. The only reason the lotto exists today is for that desire to have a little bit more, to have my ship come in. It's their way of, of turning the slots and making more because I need it. And to be honest, that's the trials and the sufferings that many of us are struggling with. We desire just more. We find ourselves preoccupied with working more, making more, or taking more from others. But let me tell you, he has many warnings against desiring more money and the attitude that money solves all the problems. First, we find in Psalms 49 that death is going to separate us from all our possessions. For he says, be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. Why? For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. Reiterating what I said before. Not only that, is we find that that safety net, that's what you and I say, we want a safety net, right? We want something to catch us for those times when something bad happens. I remember Dawn and I, especially early in our marriage when the kids were young and we really weren't making a lot of money and we always had these cars that were always on their last legs. Anyone know have a car like that? It's always on its last leg. And just when things would go wrong, a tire would blow and of course we never had a spare or something would happen. And it's like, oh my goodness, here's another $60. And so you'd buy one tire at a time, which just means you would wind up at the end of the year four tires of four different manufacturers because you're getting what's ever on sale. And that's just seemed how it always went. And, and the thing is, is we have equal opportunity cars. For I knew if Dawn's car went out one week one, by week three, my car will go out. That's always how it did. I always appreciate our cars always went out when payday was coming. Not afterwards, but when it's coming, knowing that you're going to have to get and borrow just to get enough to get that car moving. It always seemed to be the way. But we're always wanting that safety net. Well, let me tell you, the safety net of money has a big hole in it. Proverbs says, whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. And not only that, it tells us that their hope is uncertain. Turn, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. You and I need to see this and understand this. For we live in a world, we live in a country in which money is put above everything else. If you have money, you can attain all happiness, all joy, and all contentment. That's the world we live in. That's the whole purpose of advertising, is to sell you and tell you, you need this to complete you. And all it really tells us of those who fall into it, we just need a little bit more so I can buy this. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, look at verse 17. He says, as for the rich in this present age. And let me again, if you're in America, you're among the rich, no matter what you make when it comes to relation to the world. 
As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on whom? God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They, the rich, those who have been given much, are to do good and to be rich, not in money, but in what? Good works. To be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future. Now you see, it doesn't say get a good investment banker. Get a good nest egg. It doesn't say make sure that you have a great pension or a 401. That's not your foundation for the future. So what? That they may take hold of that which is truly of life. And the challenge that James is writing to those Jews 2,000 years ago, he's saying, you're holding on with two hands on the wrong thing. Let go and grab onto that which is truly life. What are you hanging on to today? It could be the thought is, I just need a little bit more. I just, I just need to have this. This would solve my problem. If I had this, I would be content in life. If I had this, I would be more happy. I would have more joy. My marriage would be better. My relationship with others would be better. That's the lie that's sold to us every day. We must realize that it is a lie. The warning of Jesus was not to have a divided heart. We saw that last week. A divided heart leads to a man who's double-minded, and it leads to a man who's unstable in all his ways. He becomes a fool and loses it all. But Jesus says, do not be a divided man. For he says in Matthew 6, 24, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, no one can serve two masters. You know this verse. You know what it's going to say already. For either will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money or mammon. The desire to have more. Rather, the wise boast in something other than riches. And we see that as you look up here with me in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. Look what the weeping prophet wrote. He says, thus saith the Lord. Let me tell you, anytime you read the Bible, you need to pay attention. But when he says, thus saith the Lord, you ought to be standing straight up to attention. Look what he says, thus saith the Lord. Let not the wise man, remember we've been praying for wisdom, right? Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he what? Understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. If you want true contentment, if you want true true joy, if you want to make it through trials and sufferings, then delight in the things of God. Amen? For only in those things do we find contentment. 
So when James writes that the rich should boast in his humiliation, he is referring to the rich believers being brought low by trials. They too are struggling. Money is no barrier to the sufferings and the trials. Such experiences help the rich rejoice and realize that genuine happiness and contentment depend on the true riches of God's grace and not earthly wealth. For 1 Timothy now, going to verse 6, says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain it will not take anything out. Boy, that's a theme that goes through Scripture. Solomon says, vanity of vanities. Everything I work for, I'll leave to somebody else, and they're just going to waste it. And many times we have to understand there's a lot of truth to that. Philippians says, Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be what? Content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secrecy of facing plenty, of facing hunger, of facing abundance, and facing need. Boy, did we not see that in the story of Job that Dustin read earlier? He had it all. And for no fault of his own, he lost it all in a matter of moments. But what was Job's response? The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Want to finish it out? And, the, and Job did not charge God with wrong. Some of you are struggling today because you're charging God with wrong. And that's the attitude that you and I truly need to pray and say, God, expose my heart, search, and see if my attitude is wrong in this way. Is my preoccupation with stuff, with the right car, with the right marriage, with the right entertainment, with the right pension, is that keeping me from finding the joy that's found in living life as you have given me? Solomon said something many times in Ecclesiastes. I'm reading Ecclesiastes, by the way, hence why you're finding all these in here. He writes, I have found that there's nothing better to do than to eat, drink, and live life with my spouse, for that is God's gift for me. Some of you are so much looking the horse in the mouth in the fact that God has given you good grace, good gifts, and you say, God, it's not good enough. My spouse is not good enough, so now I suffer from porn. I don't like my job, so I suffer for wishing I had spending my money on more lotto. I wish that I had a better husband, so I'm facing the trial of, of keeping my mind preoccupied with romance novels. Just a few things throwing up at the top of my head. The ways in which we do not find contentment in the goodness of God. Let me give you three points to ponder. Three points to ponder, because you understand the setting and you understand the commandment. If you're poor, don't worry about it. If you're rich, you're going to face trials. Neither of those things are things we're to glory in, but we're to glory in our identity in Christ. Amen? That's who you and I are. But now as we go three points to ponder. First, is God has sovereignly 
given to everyone as he desires. Look at the verse there, Proverbs 22:2. The rich and the poor meet together. Finish this out with me. The Lord is the maker of them all. You see, God has already decided and sovereignly given to those who are wealthy, to those who are comfortable, to those who are struggling, and to those that are in poverty. We were on Thursday, National Day of Prayer. One of the things that we prayed about was for our country. And my prayer in my little group was, I just thank God that I was born in the United States. For I'm not here any other reason than other God sovereignly put me into parents who were already United States citizens. I did not have to come to this country. I did not have to suffer through any type of suffering. Uh, if I was in some other country where Ethiopia or Sudan or Rwanda or some of those other places, North Korea, God forbid. Though, look, at, look at that. We're rich mainly because you and I have not done anything other than to passively been born to our parents who were born here. And even the worst of us are better than the majority of the world, are we not? I don't have the figures here, so I'm going to just paraphrase them. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. If not, I know I'm close, all right? So this is horseshoes. Those that are considered poor by the government have TVs, a car, and a phone, and a computer with refrigerator, washer, and dryer. That's the poor in America. And if you want to be that one man that lives on the beach, he lives off the substances of state aid, and he has lobster every day. I don't know if you saw that story last year about the man who makes a good living just living on the beach and taking in state aid. So we do well. So I say all that to say God sovereignly gives to everyone. No matter what you have, that is God's gift for you. If you've made well, then God bless you. Even your talents and ability to make that money is given by God. But you may say here, but wait a second, I'm poor. I've struggled. I have worked hard. I'm smart. I do everything the rules by the right way, and I still just struggle. Hard word, but God has sovereignly said that's your life. That's difficult. Now, that does not mean if you are poor or you're struggling is to stop it and just not do anything. That's not what the Bible says. But your lot in life, your contentment is not based on where God has placed you. For if you were a North Korean Christian, God has called you to contentment, even in the midst of barking dogs eating at your flesh. So God sovereignly gives to everyone. So ponder that this week, would you? Let me give you the second point that I want you to ponder. I need you as Christians. We need to struggle with these difficult things. The second point that you and I need to ponder is that God sends blessings and sufferings to everyone as He desires. Matthew 5, 45, Jesus says, For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends His rain on the just and on the unjust. So your sufferings and your trials will seem overwhelming to you. And like the prince and the pauper, you'll want to change lives for a day with someone, only to find that life is no easier on the other side of the fence. Someone once said, you know that old phrase, uh, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence? You've heard that phrase? And so we always want to be on the other side of the fence, 
All that truly means is the person that lives on the other side of the fence, grass is greener, has a larger water bill. That's all it means. So his suffering and trials is just a little bit more different than you and I. So the sufferings and the trials that you have are God's, let me say this, listen to this, the trial and the suffering that you're facing today, whether that's a marriage problem, whether that's problems with your family, whether that's financial, whether it's a health issue, no matter what it may be, that is God's gift to you. In which he says, I'm giving this to you because I love you and I am a good, wise, providential king and this is for your growth and maturity, for my glory. We need to ponder that. Because you and I have not truly grasped that and fought and wrestled that down to the ground. Once you do, and once you have the wisdom to understand and accept that, you will find peace and contentment. And let me give you the third point I want you to ponder. God is a good, wise, sovereign king. I can't say it enough. Who deserves our gratitude. For what you and I do is when we find out, well, God put me here, you mean that? You mean God gave me that problem? Then, boy, I'm tired of God. I don't want a God like that. And that's what the world does. They have rejected God because there's no way he's a good, loving God. They just want a loving God who's a grandfather, Santa Claus type person. But God is a good, wise, sovereign king who deserves our gratitude. Look at that verse. There's many others, but Philippians 2. He says, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for what? His good pleasure. For whose good pleasure? God's. Oh, not mine? Not yours? No, for His good pleasure. Do all things then without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Among what? We shine as lights in the world. So many of us are not lights, but we're like dimmed little lights. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Remember that old song? Hide in your own bushel. Yeah, the kids would scream it. I'm going to let it shine. But we got a bushel saying, yeah, but God gave me that wife. I don't mind trials and suffering, but why did he have to give her to me as my wife? You know what? That's God's gift for you. And this is what we are. And our lights are so dimmed and maybe the wind is, 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 is flickering so much that it can't be seen. But God says, do not grumble and dispute. To grumble and dispute is to look at a good God king and say, you're not good, you're not wise. We need to ponder these points. Let me give you these as closing. For there's going to be two things that will keep you from accepting those points, from finding contentment, from finding the joy that James says is for those who have wisdom enduring suffering and trials. The first one is greed. And I'm indebted to Andy Stanley in his book, from, It Came From Within. He, I, I read this several years ago and I remembered. But the first one is greed. Greed is a debt that says, I owe me. That's what greed is. And let me say this, by the way. 
Greed is not a wealthy disease. Greed is such as much a poor disease as it is those who are wealthy. It says, I owe me. You maybe did that today as you were looking at the offering plate. And you said, oh, how much should I give? Well, you know what? I owe myself uh, dinner out. I owe myself to watch a movie. I owe myself this money instead of God. You showed greed. It says, I owe me. I've worked hard for it. I need this. Greed is not limited to those that have money. It's how we think about money. That's what consumerism is. It's not how much money you have. It's how you think about it. And the only way that you and I could fight and combat that debt and pay that debt is generosity. Generosity is the only way to cancel the debt of greed. It's having the spirit that says, I don't owe me. I want to give my money away. God is a cheerful, generous giver. Let me tell you, we ought to be cheerful, generous givers of our time and of our money and of our energies and of our abilities and talents. If you do not fight greed, if you do not take generosity as your key, you will struggle with contentment the rest of your life. You will not find joy in your suffering and trials. You will be miserable. Some of you are more comfortable with your miserable trials and, and, uh, and greed. The second one is a jealousy. Jealousy. Jealousy is a debt that says, God owes me. Now that may be both poor and rich. The rich can look at somebody more and say, I don't like it that they have more than I do. Just as those who say, well, the Smith or the Joneses have more than I do. It's a debt that says, God owes me. God skipped me. God could have given me a better wife, a better kid, a better job, more talents, more better mind. He could have given me a better house. He could have given me this. Many of us suffer from jealousy and it keeps us from joy and contentment. And the only way to defeat or cancel out that debt is that of celebration, of celebrating others. So the poor, they're to exalt in their humiliation. I'll celebrate what other has. You know, I've learned this. God is never going to make me rich. All he's did is give me the ability to make rich friends. And I'm going to celebrate those rich friends. I'm going to celebrate those who give of their income and their money for the glory of God. I'm going to celebrate those that have great minds and are able to understand great things or those who have great talent that I wish that I had. I'm going to celebrate them. Why? Because that's God's gift for them. And it comes to those things that I don't have then I'll, or the things I do have that I want to be generous with them. So let's fight those two obstacles for they'll rob you of the joy and contentment. Let me leave you this, and this is the closing words of the message. Here's a prayer you ought to have. It's found in Proverbs chapter 30. I love it. Give me neither poverty nor riches. This should be your prayer. Write this verse down, by the way. This needs to be a prayer. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest be poor and steal and profane the name of the Lord. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but just give me what I need so I can lift you up. Are you ready for that type of attitude? James is saying that's the secret to finding contentment 
in the joy of suffering. Father, we come before you this morning. And I don't know where this message is going to land in the hearts and minds of those that are here this morning. So I pray that you would do that work now of just working it into their hearts. Let them ponder these points. Let them not forget them as we go on from here. Let us ponder them. Let us do the difficult word of trying to understand who you are and what we have and, and our state in life and the trials and sufferings that we have. Where does our preoccupation with money and what we have or don't have fit into it? And Lord, may we give us contentment and joy as we look and see our identity is found in not what we not have, but who we have in you. Thank you for that. We pray this in your name. God's people said, amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.